0: Let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. As we kind of get back together this morning into Ecclesiastes, you know, it's, this is one of those books where I think when you, when you ask people how to summarize the book, you're going to get a, a lot of different angles on that. Uh, I, I even remember before we started, I had a couple of people text me and said, okay, you studied the book, just give me the bottom line, just give me the summary, what's the book about? It's, and it's, it's kind of hard to put that together. But I will say this, I think with confidence. It, Ecclesiastes is written to challenge the way that we think. It is written to challenge what we prioritize in life. And I think if we come to the Word of God with the, with the mindset that we are going to place ourselves under the authority of the Word of God, desiring to hear the Word of God and desiring to respond to the Word of God we're going to be in great shape to take away what we need to from this book. And you know, I don't think this is like momentous truth or Atlantic Ocean deep truth, but I need to share it because I think sometimes when you state it, it it makes sense. But we do not come, we don't roll out of bed every morning thinking biblically. Many times we need to be challenged. We need to be Adjusted in our thinking. Many times when, when we get that, that fire hot email from somebody or we get that, that phone call from somebody or that text from somebody and you know what I'm talking about, we're ready to just react and respond and we might even have it, you know, with our little fingers typed out. Some of us take a deep breath and go, maybe I should wait on that. <laughs> maybe I should wait on sending. Some of us haven't learned that yet send and it goes and it creates more conflict. But the point is this, there are times that we need to be distrusting of ourselves. And I think we're, we're seeing that in the passage that we're coming to, you know, going back to 729, he says this, and this is, this is one of those things that I think we need to realize about ourselves. naturally is this, verse 29, truly this only I have found, this is verse uh, chapter 7, that God made man upright, God put us in a position to succeed and enjoy the fullness in this life. But, look at that, but, they have sought out many schemes. And remember that word schemes means a mechanism of self-protection, a defense mechanism. And see, many of us, this is exactly how we live our life. And that's the question we need to answer. Are we schemers? Are we self-protectors? Do we trust in ourselves? Do you have Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 up on your wall in your house, but everything reversed the wrong way? You know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I mean, we quote it growing up. Big Awana verse, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Does your version say don't trust in the Lord at all? Lean not on your own understanding. Oh, just totally lean on your own understanding. Trust your own understanding in every situation in life. Just disregard what God has to say. Do we just flip that around? See, this is the problem. If we don't realize that this is our natural tendency, then guess what natural tendencies do? They just dominate your life. That is how we're going to live every moment. So we have to be proactive in our thinking. And so we come back to the message of Ecclesiastes. God wants to challenge the way that you think, the way that you approach, the way that you prioritize everything in your life. He wants us to walk in the fear of the Lord. And I'm not saying that every step we're like, oh, if I do this wrong, he's going to zap me. Oh, that's not the fear of the Lord. It's taking him into consideration, everything that you do, how you feel, how you think, how you speak, how you act, what you do, how you prioritize your time. You're just mentally by faith, taking the Lord into consideration. That's walking in the fear of the Lord. This is the challenge that Ecclesiastes presents. And one specific area, as we get back in chapter 8, is this area is, is how do believers, how should believers respond to civil government? How, how, does, how does a wise person walking in the fear of the Lord, trusting in the Lord, respond to civil government, especially when I don't agree with them? It's real easy to like somebody and do what they tell me to do if I agree with it. That's not hard. You don't. we don't need to be taught how to do that. Right? When I was a kid, mom and dad came home and said, hey, no dinner tonight, just ice cream. I'm in. I am totally in 100%. I don't even have to think about that. I wasn't thinking about my caloric intake. I wasn't thinking about my health. I wasn't thinking about how my heart might look in 50 years. I was like, ice cream now, I'm in. I didn't, I didn't have, no one had to tell me to obey my parents. I was like, amen. Ephesians 6.1, I'll obey my parents. <laughs> I love the word of God. Yes. It's when they do something you don't agree with that then the challenge presents itself. Will you trust in your own schemes yourself or will you trust in the Lord and walk in dependence on him? That's the decision we have before us. And so we kind of pick back up in that section this morning in verse 6. We'll kind of finish out that section with the government. But we're also going to look at another section. We're going to kind of move into another section in chapter eight, and that is how do we respond wisely when justice is slow or justice seems non-existent? See, that's another area where we really like to kind of take matters into our own hands, right? If we don't see someone's wronged us, I don't see them getting justice, I better take it into my own hands. Had lots of opportunities on this trip to administer justice to other drivers, crazy drivers. You know, I'm a good driver. Crazy drivers on the road up and down the east coast of this country. It meant me administering justice because they weren't getting justice, right? And lots of different ways this kind of plays out in our lives. So let's dive in to verse 6 with that introduction. Verse 6 says this, because for every matter there is a time in judgment though the misery of man increases greatly for he does not know what will happen so who can tell him when it will occur and to kind of to get the running start to verse 6 we've got to read verse 5 because this is the promise from Solomon well actually back in verse 2 keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God verse 5 he who keeps his command remember keeps doesn't just mean obey it means value pay attention to keep your eye on, take it into consideration, listen to fully, consider it. All of these are synonyms for that word. He who keeps his command, speaking of the king, will experience nothing harmful. And then notice this next phrase, and a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. And now verse six, because for every matter there is a time and judgment do we understand that everything that happens in the realm of civil government or in, even in the realm of our lives there's a specific uh, appropriate time and season on how to deal with that a way to deal with it there's a specific way that god would have you deal with it this is one of the reasons that as a believer we're we're like really i mean we're really in a great position because we had the indwelling holy spirit who wants to lead us by the hand, who wants to produce the life of Jesus Christ in us, in everything that we do, every decision that we make, every word that we speak. So God's in line with that. That's what he wants to do. And so there's a way for every time and season, for every matter that might come up in this world, and especially in this context with civil government, that God wants us to respond. So instead of just going all half-cocked, responding and reacting the way we want to, the question is, are we even considering how the Lord might want us to respond? That's the challenge, right? That's the mindset. How would God have us respond? He says, for every matter, and, and, and again, this statement just makes it clear that at the, there's a proper time, a proper evaluation, right, a proper way to look at a situation and actually determine what to do or is this valid is this not valid there's a proper time and evaluation for all situations that happen in this life including but not limited to government the 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 dictates of government and see we often just evaluate and just determine we're just going to move out in a certain way we don't even take into consideration that God may have input for us in these situations and again what this statement also implies, if you're kind of coming at it from a different angle, is there's a a wrong way and bad timing to handle these things as well. So if there's a right way, it also improves. Uh, it implies what there's a wrong way, and for many of us, or some of us, we we often lean toward the wrong way. We need to kind of check ourselves, be challenged again in our thinking. And He's talking about matter. He's talking about events or things. In life. And so this is what we've got to understand here. Often when we don't take divine perspective, we've got to understand that naturally we're going to want things to happen on our timetable. We're going to want them to, to, to happen the way we want them to. We're going to want them to, to happen the way that we hope they would work, that we ideally think they should work. And, and then what we're going to do is we, we've got this plan now, and then we're going to do, say, and push everything to get that plan accomplished whether or not it's the right timing or not and this is the natural tendency this is how we naturally uh move and and this is what the the word of god is going to say you've judged or evaluated this situation incorrectly you are scheming you are taking matters into your own hands you are not relying upon the lord and so we've got to each understand when we've crossed that line That threshold of no longer trusting the Lord, valuing our own schematics. You know, if I was going to build a house, I would not take the schematics from my seven-year-old. I would get a licensed architect. I would trust their schematics way above my seven-year-old. You could even bump that up to my 12-year-old. I still wouldn't take her schematics. I would take a licensed architect. And here we go. We've got the God of the universe who knows how all this works, who designed you, who designed this world, who has pieces in place, who has a plan, who went to great lengths to send the greatest treasure of heaven to die in your place for your sins, rose him again. That very God has a scheme, has a plan. And you and I are telling God, no, no, God, I'll just do it my way. You know, put your crayons and your construction paper away and let's rely on the schematics of God. And see, one of the things that we're going to see here is people don't realize this principle and and they suffer for it. Because look at what verse six goes on to say. Because for every matter, there's a time in judgment, though the misery of man increases Greatly, See, in many people, we, maybe we can even relate a story in our past or our thinking where, where we've done something like this and we've suffered. We've suffered either mentally, emotionally, maybe financially. Maybe we, we just had to tell that boss off. We got it off our chest. Great job. Now you've been unemployed for a year. How'd that work out, right? We, we couldn't have waited <laughs> On, on better timing, maybe to express disagreement or a better way. And so sometimes people suffer when they don't abide by the Lord's timing or his methods. And I think we see that in life. I think that makes sense. You know, and even in Solomon's day, right? If, if somebody kind of mishandled a matter before the king or, or kind of perceived um, that the king was doing something wrong and challenged him on it. If a king perceived insubordination, he could execute people. So you can kind of see the the context here from Solomon's perspective. And so oftentimes, uh, and in this specific case, the misery or the evil inflicted on a person who does not recognize the proper time or judgment of matter can come from civil government. And that's what I just alluded to uh, with Solomon in his day. And so here's a great question. Who really knows? And this is uh, verse 7, for he does, not, he does not know what will happen, so who can tell him when it will occur? And, and this is one of the things that I think, again, it's an argument for not trusting in your own schemes, and, and part of the argument is you don't even know, you can't even predict the outcome of what's going to happen if you go your way with your scheme and you execute it. You don't even know how that's going to turn out. And I think we can see lots of examples in history where somebody started off thinking they were doing the right thing, and then when they got their way, it turned out to be a disaster. And that is what happens when you walk according to the flesh, you will reap corruption. You will reap corruption. You will reap death. That's, that's the biblical consequence of choosing to walk according to the flesh, and so what he's saying here is it's impossible to predict the outcome. It's impossible even to predict how the, how's the king going to react to you? How's, how's the king going to react to you in terms of actions and words? And so the emphasis here is truly no one can know, warn ahead about what might happen or when it will happen. We just don't know because God is the ultimate one in control, right? Hence the reason to trust in him rely upon his scheme, his plan, instead of developing our own. And now we move to verse 8, which is just kind to go on to, uh, again, reemphasize this point that we're emphasizing. Verse 8 says this, no one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit. No one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war, and wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. So again, no one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit. This this word has power uh, is an adjective, okay? It's an adjective, uh, not a verb. It's an adjective. And literally, it's saying that no human being, even a king, is a spirit governor or a spirit ruler. And, and what it's saying is this, is the government does not have this power over individuals, nor does a scheming believer have this power over government. And I think that's very important to understand because oftentimes we, we get in our mind, we, we, we come up with these self-defense mechanisms, maybe with civil government, maybe just in our lives. We come up with these self-defense mechanisms because we're seeking to insulate ourselves from problems. We're seeking to govern certain things, certain ways that, that life hits us. And yet we don't realize we don't even have the power to do that. Uh, we realize it after the fact when we've made a mess of things and we've said, ah, I probably shouldn't have gripped so tight. But, but oftentimes we go into situations like that. We don't realize that we don't have the power. Remember, even Jesus told Pilate in John 1911, as it relates to civil government, he says, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. So, so even there, Pilate in a situation where he looked like he had all the power in the world, Jesus handcuffed, beaten, before him, helpless. And Jesus even at that point says, you still don't have power over me. You don't have power. That same principle applies here. You know, government can take your life, but they can't take eternal life. They can't take position in heaven. They can't take your administrative function in the future kingdom of God. The government can't do any of that. They don't have power to take those things they don't have power over your spirit you know nobody could say oh well that guy didn't obey the coronavirus you know such and such so he's going to spend you know the first 30 days after death in, in hell or the lake of fire hey, we're going to give him a, a taste of the lake they don't have power over your spirit but at the same time why do we then scheme and think that we've got power to do things you see it's it kind of cuts both ways And so again, the power spoken of specifically is the power to retain, withhold, or to cause someone not to own something. And so the idea communicated is that no human being can take control of someone's spirit from God and his timing and judgment. Again, it's just going back to this overarching principle, God's in control. Humans don't have any knowledge or power of what will happen, when it will happen, so why do we scheme? Again, it's always coming back to that question. And then he goes on to say, no one has power in the day of death. And, and Solomon, interestingly enough, switches words here when he says power. He uses now a word that describes someone having ultimate control of a situation. And in this case, the theme continues. Man, not even a king, not us, not, not you, can control the day of your death. Death Can't control the day of anyone else's death. This is not within our control. Again, this is something that God allows. It goes back to, again, who's in ultimate Control And then he says there's no release from that war. No release means no mustering out, no discharge from the military. In other words, nobody avoids death. Nobody avoids that day. And so why does Solomon go here again? Again, he wants us to stop scheming and acting like we're in control of our lives. He wants us to stop putting up defense mechanisms, which, by the way, can't defend us from this ultimate reality anyways. Why not go through life instead of gripping hard, trying to control, trying to protect, trying to insulate ourselves from problems and go through life just responding to the Lord, trusting the Lord, relying upon the Lord? Because although we might not avoid trials, at least we've got a big hand to hold on to while we're going through trials. That's what it's all about. That's what we need to realize. And again, this, this whole concept recalls uh, you know, Ecclesiastes 3.2. Remember that? That poem in Ecclesiastes 3, 3 2. There's a time to be born and a time to die. Okay? And everybody's time is, you know, everybody, um, I hear the babies this morning's, you know, participating in the service, right? There's a time to be born, but there's also a time to die. And in every one of us, in God's view, those dates are, are settled. They're set. He's, he knows what they are. That's okay. That's part of the seasons of life. That's part of, life. And again, it just points back to his divine timing and all these things. But notice that last phrase in verse 8. It says, and wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. Wickedness specifically cannot deliver or save, rescue, or spare someone from danger. Now, why does he talk about wickedness here? What's the context? Again, it's civil government. He is calling rebellion against civil government wickedness. That's what he's calling that, that concept and that response to civil government. It's not the action of a wise person. Wise people don't take that stance against uh, an institution that God has put in place, that God has ordained. We, we saw that a couple weeks ago in, Ro- in Romans 13, 2 Peter 2. Um, or 1 Peter 2, we saw that that God ordained civil government for a purpose, for a reason, and we've got to understand that in the grand scheme, as long as that government is not commanding you to do something unbiblical, that we are to submit to it. We are to obey that government. This is what Peter and Paul both confirm in the New Testament. And so when he talks about wickedness here, he is calling the person that has an attitude towards civil government, a responsive rebellion against civil government. He's calling that person wicked. He's contrasting that type of person with a wise person. And you know, wise people, they, they understand they don't value their estimation of a situation over and above God's estimation of a situation. Uh, you know, there's, there's a word, you know, the word, it's, it's defer right? So I get to a situation. My evaluation is this. Then I look to the word of God. I, God's evaluation is this. I defer to God's evaluation. I don't, I don't just keep running with my evaluation. I recognize at that point, my thinking needs to change. My evaluation is wrong. This is what we're talking about here. And what does he say? He says here that if you Uh, go down this this road of wickedness rebelling against civil government it won't save you it won't give you the results you're looking for it will not deliver you this is what the phrase is saying and you know many react to this situation they think well if they just uh, live according to the law of the jungle right the law of the jungle is just kill or be killed just get as much as you can and then they deal with people with with grave suspicion and this is kind of the reaction to that, right? If, if civil government's misbehaving, well, then I'm just going to the law of the jungle. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to protect myself. And, you know, at, at this point, I believe Solomon would say, no, no, trust the Lord. Even though kings can go crazy and wild and those kind of things, there's an opportunity there to trust the Lord and rely upon his schemes, not get in there and try to self-protect. Now, one of the things that we see, and, and, and you know, sometimes uh, reading Ecclesiastes to me feels like a ping-pong match. Right? It's like, man, he's he's getting ready to have this crushing blow, and, and then it's like he comes back with the exact opposite perspective in the next verse. It's so he's like and you, you can see that in, in, in his, you know in the philosopher's mind, so to speak, the, the Solomon's mind, he's like, Well, this is this is true, but but then you see this, and how do you deal with these anomalies, and that's kind of what he does when he goes to verse nine, because he says this, uh, after uh, all this I have seen and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun, there is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt, and here's the first, if you will, criticism of the abuse of civil government, that civil government can actually abuse their power for either their own hurt or for the hurt of their citizens. And he recognizes that this is a very real circumstance that happens in our world, in life under the sun. Again, he's telling us this because he, he's reminding us again. Remember, he keeps telling us, like, I have investigated this fully. I, you know, it's, it's kind of like sometimes, um, and I know, know this, anyone will know this feeling. Like if you've ever taught, if you ever taught something to somebody else, a group or uh, a small group or even your kids at home, you know that if you've got 45 minutes, 20 minutes, 10 minutes, and you're given a topic, you know that you cannot cover every single nuanced possibility in that amount of time. And I, and I love, it. sometimes it's kind of fun because it, it creates gener, uh, it creates conversation, but you know, in a 45 minute message, you can't quite possibly cover all the angles yeah but what if this what if that what if that and it generates conversation earlier but it's like man if I addressed all the what ifs in every sermon I ever preached I mean we would be here till three or four o'clock and if that's what the majority wants to do no I'm kidding we won't do that no but no all joking aside there's there's certain times you can't cover every angle and Solomon uh, again he could have made Ecclesiastes another 12 chapters I think to, to, to prove how he's covered. But he's just reminding us again, by the way, don't think that I forgot about this instance. I've covered every single angle. I've investigated it all. Yeah, notice he says every work that's done under the sun. Again, it's been uh, thorough. He hasn't left any stone unturned. But notice that last phrase in verse nine. It's, it's this idea of self-inflicted hurt. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. And this is his grand conclusion, if you will, on this section on authority. And so although he was quick to to warn, encourage, command even, this submission to governmental and civic authority, he now, for us, to to give us balance, observes the other side of the coin. And that is this. For government officials, sometimes their own actions end up harming uh, not only others but also themselves in the long run Uh, all you'd have to do I mean you wouldn't even have to go back that far in our country's history to look at political people who have who have kind of abused authority and been caught you know they've they've been brought to justice they've been um, you know put in jail or or fined or put out of office and all these kind of things so in this case they they rule over meaning they they overpower it's kind of a negative connotation word that's that's used here in verse 9, they rule over, they lord over, they get the upper hand on other people, um, and, and we could call this bad governance. So, so Solomon recognizes that this is a very real possibility too, but the principle doesn't change, right? The principle doesn't change. In fact, if you go back to the Roman Empire, when Paul wrote his instructions on how to respond to civil government, Nero, Nero was in charge. Go read his biography. He... He wasn't a godly man. He wasn't supportive of Christians. He was just the opposite. And so, although this is very true, Solomon recognizes that the principle of submission to government is still in place, but he does recognize uh, the issues here uh, with human government. And, and Solomon guarantees that if, if this is happening, if, if a government official, and this is what we need to hear because this can encourage us not to scheme. If a government official is ruling over, lording over, doing something harmful to us. To summarize, he will get it one day. If he doesn't get it here, if he doesn't get justice here, he will get it in the future. God is not going to let any injustice go unpunished, even if you and I don't see it. But that's our problem. We want to see it, right? Like I've said, we want to see that truck that sped by us on the highway at 110 miles an hour, putting our our family's life in danger. We want to see them pulled over on the side of the road a mile up by a police officer. We want to see it. And, And God is saying, you know what? Trust my plan. It's going to happen. They will be judged. And so now Solomon has encouraged this submission to civil government, but now he's going to point out to us, he's going to, I think he's hes feeding off of verse nine here. He's going to point out that that this idea of retribution, justice doesn't always come in the manner or the timing in what we prefer. Um, I liked what one commentator said about this next section. He said, he called it the reflections on the mysteries of divine justice. And you know why they're, they're mysteries? Because God doesn't do it the way we think he should do it all the time. So that's, we, we have a nice word to say. That's just, it's mysterious. I don't know why justice doesn't, it's really funny. I don't know why justice doesn't work out the way I think it should. It's, it's kind of maybe a better title of the section. But what he's going to say is he's going to point out some some things that, he's, that he sees because he wants to point out why this is a difficult thing to apply, why it's a difficult thing thing to think this way, to trust God's scheme without enacting our own. And in verse 10, he's going to, he's going to recognize that some men, some women are complete hypocrites and they get away with it. They seem to get away with it in life. You know, this guy cheats this organization out of millions of dollars, owns a a house in the Hamptons, has like a, a bigger yacht than Tiger Woods, And you're like, and you're just sitting there waiting for this guy to fall and fail. But he doesn't. He cheats another company out of millions of dollars. And he buys another house in the Hampton. you're like, what gives? Like, this is is so wrong. Why isn't this guy getting spiritually body slammed by the Lord? Like, what? what is God waiting on with this guy? Doesn't he see this? And so this is some of the things that Solomon brings up. In fact, this is how he says it in verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness. And they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This also is vanity. He says, then I saw the wicked buried. And uh, so again, another thing that Solomon had, had personally observed and evaluated was wicked people who received a proper burial. Now, for us in our day, that's just kind of like, I don't know, that's not a big deal. But but we understand from the Old Testament, any kind of cursory reading in the Old Testament is one way you could really stick it to your enemies. Like that one last sharp stick into your enemies to dishonor them would be to leave their bodies unburied. We know that from this culture. So having a proper burial was in some way reflective of honoring that person's life. Now what's really interesting about the phrase here, this term um, that's used here uh, describing this burial uh, can refer to a large public funeral, okay? So so not only does, does this wicked person have a, an honorable burial, but they've got this big funeral where people are coming out to honor them. And now you can see the picture that Solomon's painting. Like, this is like, this is frustrating. Like, this type of person should never get something like that. And what really bothers them about us is, and we're going to see right here, is their hypocrisy. And as a quick summary, they were doing wickedness while still going to the temple. They were cheating people and lying to people and stealing from people and mistreating people and maybe lording it over people. And yet they were at the temple, maybe buddies with the priest, you know, going there, kind of giving this show, and on top of it, they weren't suffering any consequences for it. And Solomon's like, "This is brutal. <laughs> I can't even li- I can't even think about watching this or seeing this." And it was frustrating to him. And the way that we know that he was this person, this wicked person, was going to the temple is this next phrase: "Who had come and gone from the place of holiness." And although they're they're clearly identified with uh, as being wicked he describes that they continually went to the temple. Um, they're getting FaceTime, right? We might say that they went for a photo op, you know, some of the wicked people that want to appear good. What, when do they go uh, to, to the church service? Well, it's usually when the most people are there, right? So they can kind of get a photo op, be seen there, be, maybe be seen in the pictures that are taken. Um, and this is what we would call in our day, a hypocrite, uh, a phony Christian, you know, um, Again, people lie, cheat, steal, harm others through the week. But then they show up to the place of holiness with all smiles and offerings. And they they come in and, and everyone likes them. And yet they're out just being total scoundrels during the week. But then they're here taking up a seat every Sunday in, in our perspective. But this is what was going on in Solomon's Day. He witnessed this. Guys were, were going out, known cheaters, known thieves, known wicked men. And they're, but they're bumping into the temple, giving their offerings, giving their sacrifices, with no intention, no even desire to to walk with the Lord. And this was upsetting. And, and one of the reasons uh, it was upsetting is because everyone was observing this. Everyone knew what a two-faced, phony hypocrite these people were. And they weren't impressing the Lord. You know, that's one of the things a, a friend of mine always says is, The difference between christianity and every other religion every other religion is interested in what you must sacrifice to your god christianity is interested in telling what your god sacrificed for you it's the total opposite religion always thinks on what i can do for god not let me trust in what god has done for me through the finished work of jesus christ and so this person looks like they've got it all together Everyone's observing them. And you know what? I hate to say it. I wish I could say it. it's not true. But those type of people still exist today. You know, and for many people, uh, you've heard this. You've, you've been around the block. You've heard other people say, yep, yeah, that's why I don't go to church anymore. Full of hypocrites. Full of hypocrites. I don't go to church. And you know what? I just say amen. Yeah, the church is full of hypocrites. I mean, wh- how are you going to argue that? I'm not not saying every local church is full of hypocrites. I'm just saying that the church as a whole is full of hypocrites. People just like Solomon's describing here. We don't have to to run from that, but that is no reason. That is no excuse for us individually to check out of our relationship with the Lord. That is not a, a reason to stop growing individually, spiritually. In fact, imagine just applying that same logic to every other aspect of your life. You go to your favorite restaurant in town. Oh, I saw a bunch of hypocrites eating there. I'm not going to go eat there anymore. Why why would you do that? Why would you deprive yourself of your favorite food? Because other hypocrites are there. Can Can you sidestep them? Maybe go to a different table and just enjoy your food? Imagine if we applied the same logic at work oh, I can't work that you know, six-figure job anymore. There's too many hypocrites there, and I don't, you know, I don't want them rubbing off on me, so I'd rather go work for minimum wage. I mean, seriously? But, but, but the church, for some reason, that logic, I don't know, it's, it's crooked, but it seems straight for a lot of people. It doesn't make sense, and, and it kind of comes back to a principle, and this is not really, it's kind of a side, sidebar to this point but it comes back to this principle that each one of us can take away is we should not allow other people's carnality to justify a carnal response from us. You know, that's true if you're married. That's true if you've got kids. That's true if you work. That's true of whatever type of relationship you have with other human beings in your life. Just because they are acting carnal to me does not justify a carnal response to them. You have resources in Jesus Christ that can take you through any situation that you will ever face in this life. There is no temptation that has taken you but such as is common to man, right? First Corinthians 10, 13. You have resources in Jesus Christ. You are not left resourceless in this world. And so there's no justification. This is why when we get to, and I'm kind of going off the rails here, but this is why when we go to interpersonal relationships, if somebody has been carnal and mistreated you and you responded and were carnal of them, you can still confess your sin without blaming them and nor should you blame them. You still had resources that you didn't take advantage of. And if we could learn that in our marriages, whoa. You know, for the first, I don't, know how, I don't even want to say, it'd be embarrassing. Carrie and I celebrated 20 years of marriage last week. So we were thrilled. The way we celebrated it is with our kids. We were on a trip. We didn't get to go out or do anything, but we had a great time anyways. But you know how many, I don't even want to say how many years. I won't say it because it's embarrassing. But there were many years that every time I got upset with Carrie or tr- mistreated her or said something harsh to her, that my apology went a little something like this. I'm sorry I said that, did that, thought that towards you. But if you wouldn't have done this, I wouldn't have done that. And I love my wife. She, she is very meek and, and sensitive and sweet, but she knows how to hold my hind parts to the fire sometimes. I'll just say it that way. And she told me, well, it sounds like if you weren't married to me, you'd be perfect. And that's when I finally learned I was wrong. I'm always responsible for the way I respond, right? And so let's get back to the text now. That was kind of a sidebar. But the point is this, other people's carnality shouldn't give you an excuse for responding carnally. You got resources in Jesus Christ. We need to take advantage of those. The Spirit of God wants to produce the life of Christ. The Spirit of God wants to produce the exact same response Jesus would have in that situation that's overwhelming you at the time. It's, we got it. We got, we got those resources. Let's take advantage of it. Going back to, to verse 10, this example that Solomon's given, it, it, said, it uses this phrase, they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. And it's a tough phrase to deal with there because what does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean that they were forgotten because obviously they had a great burial, right? So that's not what it's saying. Notice the next phrase. This also is vanity. So it wasn't a good thing that they were forgotten. So what, what does it mean they were forgotten? Well, I believe by the time of their death that their phony charade had been forgotten. This is why so many people showed up at the funeral to pay this person honor. People were apparently dismissing their known wickedness choosing to remember their phony, frequent visits to the temple. And Solomon says this is also vanity. This is empty. This has no lasting value or meaning. Quite literally, this type of selective recognition is hollow, it's worthless, it's phony, and it keeps him grasping for the wind. How could this be? You know, that's that's kind of the question he's asking. How could this be? How should a wise person respond to this kind of situation? These are the questions that are being implied. Should he take matters into his own hands? Stand up at the funeral in the middle of the eulogy? I got something to say. Like, you guys just don't remember what this guy is. I mean, is that how you handle it as a wise person? How do you do this? You execute justice? Do you go on a campaign, put up billboards all around town reminding people of this guy's sins? I mean, how do we handle that? You know, many times that happens at, at funerals, right? You, you go to a funeral and they start doing the eulogy and you're like, did I, am I in the right place? Like, did I even know this person? Like, I didn't know this guy was that good. I just thought he was kind of a rascal. But the other thing we see in verse 11 is justice seems slow. It says uh, this in verse 11, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. It's interesting. One common complaint about justice throughout history, by the way, is it's not fast enough. It's not given quickly enough. Many justice systems we know in our day get caught up in bureaucracy. You know, the paperwork, the appeals. You're like, man, when is justice going to get administered here? And you know, what's interesting is, is to watch the response to this. So how do wise people respond to this? How do foolish people respond? Well, foolish people, guess what they do? Oh, justice is slow? Okay, I'm going to push the limits then. I'm going to go get away with some things. And so it says, uh, therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And so because justice seems slow or maybe even non-existence, evil people will push the limits because they think they can get away with more. In fact, to describe these men's hearts as fully set, as it does in this phrase, means they're filled up with the brim with ideas on how to carry out their evil schemes. They're just filled up with the brim. They're just just completely filled up and they want to just pursue that. So slow justice or non-justice oftentimes has this effect on sinful men. They don't see an immediate consequence, and so they just pursue sinful behavior. Maybe, uh, again, not something we want to raise our hand about, but maybe even in our own Christian lives, we've done something we know to be wrong, and we're kind of like waiting for God to zap us, and it doesn't happen. And we kinda, we're kind of emboldened sometimes to maybe do more, to, to push it a little bit more, to try it again, because we feel like we've gotten away with it. And you can see how evil men may respond. But again, the question is, how do wise people Respond? How would a wise person respond to slow justice? Will, will he scheme? Will he or she scheme come up with their own defense mechanisms? Will they again seek to execute justice or will they trust the Lord? That's uh, the point of this section. And so we get to the last couple of verses here verses 12 and 13. And he says this though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are a shadow, because he does not fear before God. And so kind of building on the thought of the last verse here, um, what we're going to see is that because sinner's justice is often delayed, it can lead to a longer life. And and again, that just seems contradictory. And most people well, I, I say most people, the natural way to think then is, well, then I'm going to live that way because I want to live a long life, right? And it's, that's kind of the wrong way to approach it, but, but many people might conclude that, well, if, if that's how they're living a long life, maybe I should pursue that way. That looks pretty fun. And and Solomon's point is going to be like, no, 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 don't think that way. It may appear that way, but trust me, here's the promises of God. And what he's going to say is that fearing God is better, And so this is one of those situations in life where the, the eye gate, you know, the eye gate, what you see, sometimes doesn't seem to match up with the Word of God. And it's those critical moments in our lives that we need to do what? Trust our eye gate or just trust the Word of God? That's a moment in our life we need to defer to the Word of God. It doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen sometimes. And we need to train ourselves to actively say, you know what, I'm going to defer to the Word of God I don't see it right now, but I trust that God has got this under control. And we want to, again, Solomon is reminding his readers of truth from a divine perspective. He's not saying it's always going to work out in this scenario every single time in life, but he's saying you can. it's better to just trust the Lord even if the trials and circumstances don't work out. In fact, yet, he, he uses that in the next phrase, yet I will surely, I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him, and yet it is a marker of emphasis. Again, he's strengthening the statement that follows, and it's something that Solomon knows for certain. He knows two things. Let's look at those quickly, and then we'll be finished. The first thing that he knows, it's going to be well with those who fear God, uh, those who fear before him, And he uses that word that's been translated good or better throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. It's it will be well or good or better than pursuing sin because you think you're getting away with it. It's always better to walk dependence on the Lord. And so the first word, uh, first use of this word fear is an adjective. He's literally saying those people are God fears. It describes their lifestyle. The second use of the word is a verb and it indicates that they are continuing They are continuing in this lifestyle. They've bought into this manner of thinking, and then they're actively applying this thinking in daily moment-by-moment situations. This is very much a choice to walk by faith, and it reminds me of a verse in the New Testament, Galatians 2.20. We know it. We emphasize lots of different aspects of it. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, how do I live? I live by faith. That is the second aspect of what Solomon's talking about here. This daily, moment by moment choice. Maybe you're bought in, you're like, yes, I believe that, but now we want to actively walk by faith in our daily life. The very life that I now live as a believer in Jesus Christ is designed to function on the principle of faith and reliance upon the Lord, not In reliance and faith in our own schematics and strategies. Are we bought into that concept? I hope so. That's kind of step one. And then step two is let's start applying that moment by moment in our daily life. Let's start taking the Lord by the hand and relying upon him and his resources for us. Notice he says before him. It means in in his face. It's got a relational aspect. We're we're with him. It's, It's kind of the idea. We're in his presence, And so walking in the fear of the Lord means simply this, being in fellowship with Him. Taking Him and His thoughts and His instruction, we're taking all of that into consideration as we walk in this life. As we take a step, we're looking to Him. As we take another step, we're looking to Him. It's this moment-by-moment dependent relationship on the Lord. And the second thing that Solomon learns is that wickedness is, is worse, okay, wisdom and fearing the Lord is good wickedness is worse there's a simple summary of that verse and I think we we should be convinced with that he says but it will not be well with the wicked nor will he prolong his days which are as a shadow because he does not fear before God so in contrast to those who fear the Lord the wicked do not and they suffer the consequence of this and so it might look like they're living uh, a long and, and glorious life. But what we find, especially from the scriptures, is that this life is just a, a vapor compared to the length of our existence, which goes into eternity. And, you know, I'm just going to close with a familiar story. You, you all know the story of the rich man and Lazarus found, found in the gospel. And one of the things that's interesting is it really, I think, uh, illustrates this point very well. And that is the rich man lived in just complete luxury his entire earthly life. And Lazarus was a, was a poor beggar that sat outside of his gates. Um, he was so poor and dirty and unhealthy and filthy. The rich man never took care of him that dogs, wild dogs, would just come around him at night and lick his sores. It's disgusting. It, it puts into perspective what... what what a bad situation he was in. They both died. Lazarus was a believer. He went to paradise. The rich man went to torments in Hades, and guess what? The rich man said, I miscalculated. Wow. I had this short time on earth. This is what I did with it. I would switch places with Lazarus in a second and he recognized. And this is what we're recognizing here. It doesn't matter uh, in a sense of, of what appears to be successful in this life. We are living with eternity in mind, and hence we need to be challenged to think the way God thinks. God writes in such a way to communicate to us with a, with a goal of thinking with eternal things in mind, changing our value structure, changing our priorities, changing our perspectives. And so may we just take, take heed to whatever the Lord is, is teaching you through the passage this morning and just just be really active uh, in, your mental, in a mental way to respond to what the Lord is teaching you these days. Let's pray and we'll close right there. Lord, thank you um, for your word. Lord, we wanna be believers that are, that are in tune with you. Uh, we do not want... Uh, to live our life scheming uh, according to our own thinking and our own ways, uh, we we really want to adjust our thinking. We want to be in line with your thinking. And so, Lord, we need you to to just take these truths and uh, bring them home to our hearts and and remind us of them throughout throughout the weeks ahead. Uh, if you need to use uh, trials or certain circumstances to bring them to life for us, and we we pray you do that, Lord, because ultimately. Uh, our main goal is to walk with you, to, to enjoy you, to be in fellowship, to be pleasing to you, to live a life that's, that's actually worthy and will count for something in eternity. And so we thank you again for your word. We thank you for your spirit. Uh, we thank you for the believers uh, here, Lord. Grateful uh, for folks who desire to sit under your teaching and respond to your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.